You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talkback program. Well, our next guest has been nicknamed Puff, because he's the nice dragon on CBC's hit television show, Dragon's Den. Brett Wilson was raised a Catholic, and uh, Brett started questioning his beliefs at the early age of 10. Can you believe that, folks? He was analytical even from uh, that young of an age. Uh, However, a recent diagnosis of prostate cancer launched him into the search for healing, which ultimately opened his eyes up to the reality of a variety of spiritual modalities. And now this analytical, rational engineer finds himself redefining his spiritual beliefs and considers himself a reluctant agnostic. BrettWilson.ca is the website, and he joins us today on the Drew Marshall Show. First thing i got to know, Brett, is uh, when you were in university, did you really persuade a local dancer to reenact Lady Godiva's infamous horseback ride across the campus as a stunt? She wasn't local. She came from Calgary to Saskatoon, so your facts are close, but not quite. <laughs> the greatest challenge was finding a white horse, to be quite candid. Really? The, uh, the end result was uh, a measurable increase in the attention paid to the College of Engineering at the time. I can imagine. I can imagine. I'm glad you joined us today. We've uh, chatted briefly this week, and I have been looking forward to pounding you with questions over the next 25 minutes. Well, I've lost sleep ever since we first spoke. I can, yeah, I can only... So let's go. <laughs> <laughs> are you still involved with football, as they say? Uh, soccer? Uh, are you more interested in hockey or soccer? The Predator? What's going on with your, your sports interests? Well, I've, I've kind of stumbled into uh, the opportunity to diversify away from sort of oil and gas and real estate, which I've been doing for 20, 25 years. And I call it the fun factor. And I stepped into it. I own a, piece of a, a small piece of a baseball team as well as an interest in the Nashville Predators and uh, the Derby County uh, Football Club, which plays the Rams in the, uh, in the uh, championship division uh, over in England. Well, let me just say, as a personal friend of uh, Dan Ellis, one of your goaltenders down there, I, I would like you to keep him because he loves playing in Nashville. He says the media actually is polite to you. They ask when's a good time to do an interview, and he doesn't get bothered in the streets at all. You know, I think a lot of people underestimate the power of Nashville as a city. I mean, it's a music city for sure, but it's also the headquarters of the U.S. medical industries, and uh, it's just an absolutely beautiful, wonderful city. And uh, uh, so that's one issue in terms of my interest in seeing NHL stay alive in Nashville. Uh, I watched them play uh, Calgary last night, and we, uh, we, my wallet we. cheering here. Yes. Uh, my heart was with Calgary, my wallet was with Nashville, and my wallet was cheering loudly last night. Uh, but uh, we won one nothing over Calgary, so it was a good game, and Ellis played fabulously. Yes, I heard, I heard. I was at the uh, lacrosse game here in town, The Rock, and I think that's, uh, that's well, I know, that's my first, but that's probably going to be my last uh, lacrosse game. Oh, what didn't appeal? Uh, the humans who are watching the game. <laughs> it's a little raunchy, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, I know, it's a, it's a room full of, rad- of um, well, looking for, I'm searching for a word, but I know when the Roughnecks play in Calgary, my kids have turned out to, they go to that just to be part of the audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember I, I was dragged out to a cricket game when I was living in Australia, and, I, you know, cricket's like watching paint dry as far as I'm concerned. And the uh, the Palms were playing the Aussies, and the, the hail came down. We all piled into the into the stadium underneath, and he looked out, and these two moronic imbeciles were dancing naked in the hail. And I thought for sure they must be lacrosse fans. 
Uh, but they are. They could well be Australians. Oh yes, yes they could. <laughs> you know, it opens up the. Anyway, it next does. topic. Yes. Uh, well, North Battleford, Saskatchewan. Do you remember an old rough rider named Gordy Barwell? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I know the name. Yeah. Well, Gord, uh, his son and I have been friends for many years, and, and uh, um, of course, Gord passed away a number of years ago of cancer. And I, every once in a while when I hear someone's from that neck of the woods, I throw out that name, and I'm amazed. You, I mean, the green bleeds green, let me tell you. Well, Bill Baker was from North Battleford as well, and he was the guy who knocked out uh, Wilkinson twice in uh, in one season in, in quarterback sackings. Um, so, no, another legend. Uh, it was Bill Baker, the Undertaker, they called him. <laughs> Brett, aside from having your tonsils removed as a kid, you really haven't gone through any major physical health issues in your life, have you? <laughs> Other than cancer and uh, and being slightly crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, the, yeah, no, the cancer was uh, was a big issue for me, and uh, I was diagnosed the week before I turned 44 with uh, a very advanced form of uh, prostate cancer that required uh, fairly rapid action on my part, and uh, and then subsequent to that, I had the side effects of the radiation come back to bite me, and uh, frankly, that was I sometimes described ten times worse than the uh, than the radiation. On the other hand, I still think I did the right thing when I had radiation, or I wouldn't be here today. Well, but you, I mean, over the years, you've kept in pretty good shape. I think for most of your life, you're a swimmer in your 20s. Did you yep. play Did you play much volleyball like your son, or didn't get into I played that? high school volleyball in university, but at the recreational level. I mean, my son plays at the university level, and he's in a different league. I don't, uh, I don't like to compare myself to him, nor do I like receiving his serves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as, as you became more successful in business, your health kind of got shoved down the list of priorities, right? It really just started to slip. And, uh, you know, the more time I spent in the office, the, uh, the more money I made, and so... Uh, um, when you're looking at priorities, I guess you sort of forget so a bunch of things like your health. Yeah. Well, in all aspects of your health, Brett. I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. mental, emotional, physical. spiritual, yeah. physical, the whole deal. Yeah. Every aspect slipped. I know you retired from full-time worker at 50, I think, but I, I have a feeling that once an A-type, always an A-type. In other words, you're still a workaholic? Well, my kids make fun of the fact that when I talk about, you know, when we were traveling in Australia or in Africa a couple of years ago, and I said I'd retired a few months ago, and my daughter looked at me and said, I've never seen you busier. <laughs> and it's fair to say I retired from work in terms of the conventional, where I had clients calling me and partners expecting me, and, uh, and now I've really just got a team that works on a portfolio of investments that we've made over the years. And uh, so I have much more control over my schedule, but that doesn't mean I'm not busy. I'm uh, actually wonderfully busy. But are you, I mean, do you have a grip on this workaholic thing? I mean, seriously, I cannot believe that during your personal war on cancer, you hired a sports psychologist to help you uh, have a better attitude. He suggests a book to read, and you get one of your staff to read it for you. Well, she did a book report. That's all. We're talking about efficiency here. Unbelievable. (laughs) He refused to meet with me until I'd read the book, and so I had the book report done, got the essence of it. I got what he was trying to tell me, which is I had to slow down. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it worked. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm trying to accomplish a bit more than uh, maybe other people would choose to Mm. uh, who have better sense of balance. But uh, it's part of what drives me. It's part of what makes me happy. But at the same time, uh, you know, my goal for 2010 is one word, simplify. Nice. Emotional health. Uh, the end of your marriage, you've spoken about that having quite an impact, and of course your, mo- your emotional health. And, and I, I, you know, you look back on this, and you, do you think, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, if I wasn't such, if you know, the, the hindsight stuff, you know, the workaholic, the, I don't know, whatever it, that plays into it, the reality is going through that kind of emotional uh, I don't know, crash? Is it fair to say crash? Is that a fair well, word? Well, Drew, I looked at sort of my life a few years later after doing a bit of work with a variety of coaches and counselors, and it was pretty obvious then, 
and I didn't see it at the time, of course, but at the uh, towards the end of my marriage, I was clinically depressed. I mean, the 12 oh. signs of depression, you know, nine of them for sure, and three of them I might still be in denial on, but, <laughs> but there was no question that there was a state of depression going on. And, uh, and in fact, candidly, I mean, it's just because it's relevant right now when they talk about it with, uh, and I'm not comparing myself in any way to Tiger Woods, but I realized that my life was a mess when I saw, when I raged at one of my kids one night when I was asking them why something hadn't happened, and, uh, and I said, why would you tell someone I'm never home? And she looked at me and said, because you never are. And this is a little 10-year-old. And uh, wow. And what that led me to was a time, I spent time in the meadows down in Wickenburg, Arizona, which is an addiction and trauma treatment program, which for me was really all about resetting the priorities in my life. You know who you uh, remind me of with this drive you have is a guy named Paul Henderson. Uh, of mm. course, we know Henny is the uh, the uh, team. The goal. Yeah, the goal. Yeah, and Henny uh, has just been diagnosed with cancer as well. Oh. Uh, he was on our show a couple of weeks ago. Shared his story and and uh, what's going on. And uh, yeah, you guys, I don't know. You have the same kind of drive. How? Um, Maybe you could take us back to June twenty eighth, two thousand and one. You uh, you got calls from your divorce lawyer and your doctor that day. Back to back, right? It was at eleven o'clock. My divorce lawyer called and said, "You know, the last couple of little things we're trying to sort out with the uh, with the other side, if you will. Here's the words they've given us. Here's what they'd like to do." And uh, I listened to her and I said, "Well, that's more than we were asking for. We're done. Let's go. We're finished. Sign them. Sign it. We're done." And uh, I turned to my secretary, we work in an open office, and said, uh, looks like we can close the divorce file. And she just kind of smiled. She knows both Pam and I, and she just smiled and said, that's good. And it was about eight minutes after 12, I remember vividly, when, the, when my doctor called and said, I need to see you, but I'm going out of town tomorrow, so I'm just going to tell you. Um, you've got cancer, and uh, I've booked you for surgery, and uh, if you want to come in and talk about it at all, uh, I'll be back in about a week. Now, is this still your doctor, Dr. Bedside Manners? Is he still with you? or I was able to move on from him. Okay. And it was a case of Bedside Manners. He's a dominant player in the prostate cancer world, and he was under pressure. And, in fact, he himself had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Oh, my so goodness. I think his own mind was racing. But, sure. Uh, no, I didn't. I wasn't appreciative, if you will, of the bedside manner. But more importantly, I had cancer. I had to deal with it. I often imagine telling the kids, how do you play that out? I mean, you, you, did you sort of rehearse it in your mind, or did you just start yapping one day and then regret what you said? Uh, the latter is, in hindsight, exactly what happened. I, um, I was traveling to Europe that summer already. I'd made So this was the end of June, early July, when I made the decision on how I was going to be treated, which was at a, which was at a cancer clinic down in the U.S. that was doing programs that were considered experimental in Canada at the time. They're now ordinary here, but it was experimental at the time. And uh, I was traveling, and I was actually in a European airport, I think in Frankfurt, and I was sitting with the kids. We were about to board to come back to uh, Canada, and I said, listen, guys, I'm going to be uh, traveling most of August and part of September. I'm going to be away because I have to get treatment for uh, the very same thing that Grandpa Bill had, which was prostate cancer, and uh, I've got to deal with it. And it's it's so ordinary. Lots of men get it. And I was trying to downplay it, and, uh, and um, later one of my daughters said, Dad, the way you described it, Russell, my son, is we basically told him he was going to be getting cancer soon. Oh, no. And I was trying to make light of it, to make it so that it was just ordinary course. Yeah, it, yeah. it happens to everyone. Uh, it's not uncommon. You know, don't worry about it. You know, in spite of the fact that I had a very advanced case, it was more than any doctor who had seen me had ever seen someone at my age in terms of the advancement of the prostate cancer. And uh, I know I screwed up the, the message. And I don't know what the right message should have been or was or how I would do it uh, differently, but... Uh, I had to tell them because I was going to be gone for six weeks. 
Tell me about the tears during the drive up to the cabin with your kids. Uh, it turns out all you had to do was pee, but where, where did that? Where, where did <laughs> You've that? Done your homework. Where did that emotion come from? Well, I was sitting in the. I had our uh, our nanny was driving up with with us. Uh, it was the July long weekend, which happens to be my birthday, and it's always the holidays, you know. And uh, we were heading up to my cabin, which is a two three hour drive through the mountains. And um, I was sitting making notes on what I wanted my funeral to look like. I had my estate or my will done. But I was writing out what my funeral would look like in terms of who I wanted there, what the music would be, and uh, and uh, the celebration of life as I described it, which is, I think, the right way of describing these things. Mm-hmm. And um, it just suddenly started to hit me that you know I was focusing heavily on my death. And it's inevitable. I mean, we, we can't avoid it, but uh, we always like to delay it. And uh, here I was facing it like it was around the corner. And uh, I started choking up, and uh, sunglasses are on, and tearing, tearing up a bit, and... Uh, I still remember this went on for about a minute, and I was just sobbing in my shoulders, and all of a sudden my son touched me, and I thought he was reaching out to console me, but in effect he did. But the reality was he said, Dad, I have to pee. (laughs) And so we pulled over, and we both got out and peed at the side of the road, got back in, and I thought, all right, I got the crying done. Let's get on with living. And it really was. I really flipped the page and said, all right, now what's my plan going to be? How do I want to go about doing this? And it was the next day, July, the next day was July 1st, and all the cancer clinics in the U.S. were open because, of course, it's a holiday in Canada, but no working day in the U.S. Yeah. So while the kids were out playing on the boat uh, with a neighbor who had come over at my request, uh, I got on the phone and started talking to cancer clinics across the United States. There was five or six of them that I wanted to, to chat with, and another neighbor had a fax machine, and uh, so I started faxing my results out to these uh, cancer clinics in the U.S., and uh, uh, starting the process of, uh, as I call it, living. You know, as as guys, the crying thing um, is weird for many of us. And, and throughout all of this with you, Brett, I mean, were you learning how to cry? Or was it just that crying in front of the kids is taboo? Because when you were getting radiation, your mantra was cry, fry, and die. Yes. And, yeah, and, much so. and you probably still weep like a little schoolgirl when you watch Rudy, like I do. <laughs> You know, I find that my emotions, I mean, there's there's another story that it was kind of a, the week I turned 30. Uh, unfortunately, both my mother and her mother passed away in the same hospital the same day, about an hour apart. Oh. And as much as I was able to hide the emotions, uh, you know, I'm a Wilson, you know, kind of the Scottish, um, you just you just bury these things and suck it up. I don't think I'd ever cried in front of other people, uh, you know, except as a three-year-old, seven-year-old. Um, for 20 years and uh, that day was the day that uh, my emotions kind of came to the surface and uh, the dam cracked uh, yeah I mean I have trouble reading some of the stories in Reader's Digest uh, you know, with, uh, <laughs> you know that get emotional my son and I used to take turns reading the stories of those you know those chicken soup for the yes for the soul, soul? Yeah, yeah. yeah well there was ones for the chicken soup for the family and um, I could read the ones about um, kids dying and passing on and uh, whatnot. Uh, I'm sorry, I could read the ones about uh, animals passing on, Yeah. Uh, but my son would start crying, and he'd be, no, Dad, Dad. We'd read these stories to each other at night, and I couldn't read the ones about losing a child, because that, of course, as a parent, sure. there's no greater tragedy. Yeah. And so he would read those thinking nothing of them, and so we would take turns, but you know, we'd have each other just, just dripping tears as the... Uh, you so, see, I think it's a good lesson for boys to see. But from what I understand, uh, really, you should be getting your assistant to read these uh, Reader's Digest books. And, <laughs> no, 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 it's not that give... bad. It's not that bad. <laughs> okay, so emotionally, Brett, are, are you a different man uh, today than pre-2001? Emotionally? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think both... Uh, well, it starts, first of all, though, with priorities. I mean, I understand the importance of my health relative to those who care about me. You know, if I'm gone, 
you know, it doesn't really matter how sick or how healthy I am, but if I'm here, I want to be emotionally, physically, intellectually healthy. And so I continue to work on that. I, uh, I was off at a one-week retreat just before Christmas called the Hoffman Process. Absolutely amazing that did for me in terms of just opening my eyes to the, to the negative side of some of the things I do and uh, reinforcing the positive. Brett, you still don't strike me as, you know, Mr. Kumbaya, pound, you know, primal screaming, pounding a pillow kind of guy. You know, for a week a year, you can get by with a little bit of that. And I like to sing Kumbaya. No, I, I get, I get your point, but it's uh, there's still another side of me that uh, allows me to connect both with family and friends. That uh, you know, I don't need to be the hard driving investment banker trying to make the million dollar deals. Men think that anything happening below the belt just gets scratched until it goes away. <laughs> it seems to work. Wow. Yeah, no, that's the comment I made at the prostate cancer fundraiser that I uh, that I coordinated, and uh, and I think it's true that men, uh, you know, especially because the prostate gland is hidden inside something called the rectum, yep. men don't like talking about it. Darn near and, killed them. Uh, yep. Rectum damn near killed them. Yep. Exactly. And uh, so the scritch scratch of uh, just let it go away and not talk about it, um, you know, it's. Uh, that whole world of prostate cancer is awareness is my biggest concern there because a lot of men just don't realize the importance of testing at an early age. So uh, your your life is sort of spinning out of control. You've been given the diagnosis of something that again you can't have control, and you uh, like to have control, and so you decide to get control back. So you plan your funeral. Yep. Was that as cathartic as as you made it out to be? It was so powerful because it was sort of on the, the to do list. And it was the bottleneck to doing everything else because right. I had to I had to get that out of the way. And I just sketched it out on a page and just said, "Here's the event planner. I want to have help you do it because they know how to organize things." And uh, <laughs> did you pick the, the, the types of sandwiches? And uh... well, we didn't quite go that far, but it wasn't. We were one level away from the hot dogs, but it was very much uh, you know sort of the you know, the place and the time and the. So I just had thought those things through as I as I wanted at the time. I'm sure the list would be different today, yeah. but uh, it truly was cathartic because it was like uh, the most important thing for those I leave behind um, as a working as a working paper, and that was for everyone else. And then everything else that I had to do after that was for me. And that again was the day of talking to the cancer clinics and starting the process of understanding, you know, radiation versus surgery and the different forms of radiation, the different places you could go for radiation and. And, of course, the U.S. medical system is relatively expensive. I'm fortunate that that wasn't an issue for me, but I still try to like to spend my money wisely. And so it was a matter of understanding who and what and how much. And all right. So you start researching all these alternative treatments in the States. And, and actually, would you mind telling me just very briefly about the quack in Reno? <laughs> I wish I could remember his name. He's since passed away, but it was a... Uh, uh, and again, I called him a quack because they were there was all this blood work they wanted me to do, and the uh, and again, I believe in alternative medicines. That's the first thing I want to know before anyone starts shooting at you for for me taking shots at because I used a healer in my own journey. I've used naturopaths, I've used uh, uh, distance healing, all that sort of stuff. But uh, this guy just wanted to sell me a, the equivalent of I think a thousand dollars worth of vitamins every day, and uh, and just get me into the system. There was very little diagnosis, next to no science, as best I could. So was but, he was he into sort of the homeopathetic stuff, uh, or worse? Okay, I, mean, I get the I get the fun. The um, it, it was high doses of everything, and uh, it, again, it wasn't so much the treatment; it was the process. He just looked at me and said, "Well, here's what you should do," and it was like everyone should do the same thing. And I thought, "Well, do you want to know that I've got cancer?" And it didn't seem to matter. It no. was just run me through the mill, and uh, 
Um, it just didn't. It, it was a place for people of last hope, and uh, it saddened me that they were being treated with such disdain. Well, they do that in a lot of churches. Uh, they sell hope, you know, and that uh, that's uh, part of my personal uh, uh, war. Well, one might argue it's false hope. Thank you. Well, yeah, I think what they, the way they do it and what they're actually selling, I, I would tend to concur in, in uh, many ways. But back to the alternative practices and the, and the alternative uh, treatments and the healing, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, now everyone knows why you got so daggum defensive on Dragon's Den when Crystal Dude comes out, <laughs> right? And you get yeah. ended up, what did you give him, five grand or something? And, and, and Grumpy Bum beside you ended up coughing up 500 bucks. Is that how it worked? I uh, I didn't quite catch it all, but everyone keeps saying, oh, yeah, remember that episode where, you know, everyone was taking the mickey out of this guy, and you stood up for the, the this poor uh, hippie. Well, there was two sides to it. One was I didn't much like the way he was being treated. I mean, I was raised uh, by someone who said that uh, if you've got nothing nice to say, then shut up. Right. Um, or words to that effect. Yeah. Nothing nice. And the other was that I really did believe, I really do believe, having worked with a healer in my own journey, um, dealing with the side effects of radiation, uh, I mean, I had one of the top medical doctors in my field in the United States visit me on day one, partway through my treatments, but it was day one in terms of my relationship with him. And about a week later, I saw my healer, and about a month later, I saw this U.S. medicine, or the U.S. doctor, and he looked at me and said, I've never seen improvement like what you've enjoyed in the last month, given what you had. Hmm. And, uh, and then he asked me how I'd done it. What, like, what have you been doing? And I told him about the healer. And he rolled his eyes and just said, you know what, if you were the first, I would question it. But you're by far, you are by no means the first to tell me stories like this. Wow. So it impressed him. And, of course, I'm living proof of what it did. I mean, I know what it did. So when these guys started taking shots at someone who um, uh, is on the show of his own volition, I mean, he told a story which may or may not have made the show of how he was down to his last $20. And he was describing meeting a businessman. And the businessman was scrambling for a cab, and the guy realized he didn't have any money to pay the cab. So this guy, Clayton, pulls out his 20 to help this businessman pay for his cab. Hmm. And what's that? what happens as a result is the guy ends up buying Clayton's supper. And, you know, so he just talks about the pay-it-forward concept, and that resonates for me. Here's a guy who's just trying to make a difference in the world in his own way. And I'm sitting with four other dragons who are snipping at them. Arguably, you know, they're all infinitely wealthy. And they're snipping at him for what he's trying to do to improve the world. As Mother Teresa said, no act of charity is too small. So why you would rain on some guy's dream is beyond me. So I decided to step up, and, uh, and I looked at 5000 as an investment. I looked at every charitable dollar I spend as an investment, and I thought it was one of the better investments I've ever made. Folks, on the phone with Brett Wilson, Dragon's Den star, raised a Catholic. You get diagnosed with prostate cancer. Most people even though their Catholicism has been probably left behind for, for years, would tend to default into that realm when stricken with cancer. Did you go there at all? It didn't cross my mind. Really? It's funny. I just, now that, I mean, I'm sitting here scrambling to think about that, but I did not turn to. I mean, certainly at times of weddings and funerals, we all, I shouldn't say we all, but I turned to the church. Um... But I, uh, well, having said that, I was at a funeral yesterday for a young man who took his own life uh, just a week ago, and it was a celebration of life done at a at a um, uh, at a local recreational club just for the size of room, and there was um, nominal reference to God and all sorts of reference to life and celebration and uh, and memories and uh, a tribute to this young guy. Um, 
I really didn't turn to God. The follow-up question is why? I mean, if you had, well, I mean, aside it's from the aside, well, yeah, but aside from the fact that we know that even at the age of ten, you were questioning your belief system in, in you know, in this whole Catholic thing you were you were raised in. So obviously, you know, you've had a lot of practice shoving that stuff out. I guess one of my challenges, as I as I sort of look and have grown with time, um, is I see a lot of organized religions take a very cult-like approach to indoctrinating. You know, stand up, sit down, kneel. Um, and then pay me. Um, right. Doesn't strike me as as, as as believing in the in the greater joy. And you know, like I, I worked very closely with my daughter last year when she was doing a religious studies course as she was finishing an engineering degree, and uh, I was helping edit some of her papers. And it was fascinating whether uh, and looking at the question of how can a a God who expects you to be fearful of Him, and yet He's all loving and all knowing. I mean, well, there's such a contrast in, uh, you know, am I afraid of this guy, or does he unconditionally love me or not? But think about that as t- in terms of you being a dad and parenting. There yeah. is, there is a, 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 not a horrified fear, but there is a reverent fear, uh, there should be, of your children, of, of you, and yet they know that you love them unconditionally. I'm not sure I buy the horrified fear. I mean, there should be respect. No, and that's what I'm saying. I don't think they're horrified. Oh, yeah, I'm hor- sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's what we agree then. There's, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. And so I struggle with most religions as a result. I mean, I, I've attended uh, the Jewish faith. I've been in synagogue. I've, uh, I've been in the Unitarian Church. I've been in the United Church and Anglicans. Um, but I still, I still struggle with some of what I see, sort of feel is the, uh, is the cult-like aspect of just believe me and give me money yeah. um, coming from the pulpit. And uh, Do you think there's a God? I have trouble believing that the package that we live in you know whether it's the uh, the emotional systems, the brain, the the uh, the human condition uh, could be put together randomly. Uh, I just have trouble believing that all of this is morphed from a single-celled amoeba. So I I believe that there's more than uh, uh, than just randomness. That right. You're, so you, you're one that says it takes more faith to believe that than that there is a designer. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a leap of faith to think that this just happened. Yeah. Um, but so. And I do believe in energy, and I do believe in spirit, and I do believe in. Uh, oh, it, it's hard to describe because I, you know, the sort of the scientist in me sometimes really questions yeah. the way some things are described. See, that's and, the that's the anomaly here, Brad. I mean, part of you sounds like a tree hugger from Vancouver, <laughs> and uh, and the other part of you is, you know, this A type engineer, Mister Analytical, and you yeah. just it's just got a I, what a nightmare having a peek into your brain. Well, most would say that the. Uh, <laughs> But I guess it's you know I still think that you can believe in uh, in a greater power without having to be at church every Sunday. And that's yeah. not to criticize those who find faith and and right. find consolation in doing that in a regular way. Because for some people, I think attending church on a weekly basis would be a form of med not I was going to say medication a form of <laughs> meditation that um, that is very cathartic for them. Yes, and for others, uh, not to be too smart or smug, uh, it is a form of medication, yes. and they need to be weaned off of that medication and maybe find the meditation behind it. Boy, that was deep. Maybe I should well, say that again. Yeah, no, I, we could do a show on that alone. I mean, <laughs> let's get into Sunday morning ripoffs. And, yeah. uh, you know, anyway, that's another story. Yeah. Okay, um, pushing the envelope a little further, again, on the line with uh, Brett Wilson from Dragon's Den. Uh, Jesus, most folks that I hear talking like you're talking don't really have a problem with jesus it's just his followers that drive him nuts 
I don't doubt for a moment that there was a guy named Jesus or Jesus that walked the earth several thousand years ago. What I struggle with is this group who have taken and written the Bible. Let's let's remember that the Bible's been written by a thousand different people, maybe 10,000, maybe a million different people have had input into the different versions of the Bible. And so for people who interpret the Bible literally and take each word to have importance, It scares me. I mean, I get that there's some incredible fables that can direct your life and reasons to live a different way, and they're good learning lessons. But um, as a self-help book, uh, I don't think the Bible should be interpreted each, uh, you know, each word and um, on a word-by-word basis. I just struggle with that. So you're saying what drives you bonkers is those that like to uh, take uh, various scriptures out of context in order to support and further their own agendas. Well, and there's those who are critical of the Bible, and I'm not one of them. But I know I've seen stories where you can find directly conflicting advice from different places in the Bible. And, of course, many who follow the Bible would have to somehow just wave those off uh, in order to believe that every chapter and verse has meaning. So how do you define faith, Brett? Oh, faith would have to be a, a trust in the world we live in, that uh, we are here for a greater purpose, that... Uh, there is a greater power that watches over in some way, shape, or form in terms of guiding us, that we are spiritual beings living a human experience, that um, uh, you know, otherwise this, the, the randomness of what goes on in this world is, is virtually impossible to explain. You've written about uh, the prairie ethics. You, talk, you know, that's a, that's a catchphrase for you. Where do you think those ethics have come from? Uh, just simple-minded country folk, or is there a biblical basis where this community has come from, the, the foundations of these building blocks of these communities uh, years and years and years ago? Uh, but, you know, I think you know the, the prairies were opened and settled by the original entrepreneurs, the hunters, the trappers, the fur traders, the farmers. And these were people who had to endure the harshest of conditions right. in the world. They, you know, they came out into the prairies, and these prairie winters, I mean, there's 40 below for 40 days with 40-mile-an-hour winds. Uh, and you show up and, uh, you know, trying to, to eke out a living. I mean, it, it takes a very hardy person. And I think out of that, adversity breeds character or shows character, reveals character. And uh, a lot of prairie people understand. I'm not suggesting the Atlantic and, uh, and the you know, other people don't have these values, but I certainly see it evident in the prairies where, you know, when someone's in trouble, you help them. When someone's uh, um, needs a hand up, you give it to them. You know, a handshake is all it takes to get a deal done, and uh, the value of work. I mean, you work for a day, and then you get fed. It's, there's no there's no handout expected just because you're here. Yeah, interesting. You know, you are a walking anomaly in so many ways. I think about the Catholic upbringing. I think about the prairie ethics. I think about these, you know, you, you can't deny that the, the foundation of, or one of the foundational building blocks of those communities that you grew up in was church, was God, and the journey, yet the journey of of walking away or disseminating that information and coming to some sort of analytical, rational conclusion started as a ten year old. Well, I just I remember sitting in church with my parents, and we did attend regularly. My you know, I, my my father, I mean, my mother's parents, my mother's father, Jedianami Brousseau, had several brothers who were Jesuit priests, and my uh, my dad's family came out of a long line of French Catholics, um, the, the Prince family. Um, but I'm sitting there as a 10-year-old, and I'm listening to the gospel. He reads, the, the priest reads the gospel, and then he interprets it. And it's the interpretation where he loses me. I'm sitting there going, that's not what that means. And I'm only 10. <laughs> you know, are you guys all believing this? It, just, it was such a stretch. Yeah. And I remember challenging my parents, and they just didn't want to talk about it. And that 
frustrated me even more. Yeah, I did the same thing with the United Church minister when I was a pretty close to that same age. I walked in and said, I started asking questions about, uh, you know, creation, evolution, and uh, dinosaurs, and animals, and man, and, and it basically patted me on the head and said, uh, you know, that's just uh, too hard for me to explain and for you to understand, so go away, little boy. And, uh, yeah, I haven't been to the United Church in a long time. So, listen, if I showed up at Brett Wilson Day in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, is, is there like a pumpkin pie eating contest? What, what actually happens at this... Uh, well, let's be clear. It was once only, oh, okay. and as Andy Warhol says, you get your 15 minutes, and in Saskatchewan, <laughs> it lasts a little longer. <laughs> right. And, uh, no, it was an amazing opportunity. I mean, I, uh, the, the story behind that was uh, some work I'd done in uh, in sort of reinvigorating uh, the Battleford sense of uh, who they are and what they were capable of doing. And what had happened, and I just realized I was giving a lot of money on an annual basis uh, to the Calgary United Way program or the for the appeal, and uh, I realized I'd done nothing for my hometown, which I'd give full credit for my uh, many of my ethics, my roots, my uh, my upbringing, and I thought I should just throw some money back at the United Way in North Battleford. And uh, very quickly, we I, I hired someone to help me get leverage, and we evaluated uh, ultimately about sixty or seventy different charities in the Battlefords. I gave, ended up giving a hundred thousand dollars to the Battleford United Way and said, give half of it to these thirty or forty charities that I shortlisted, and the rest is for general purposes and i just sent them a letter the next thing i know it's a headline in the newspaper and it wasn't my intention that this be public information on the other hand i didn't say it had to be confidential but the data points i didn't realize the next largest donation ever to that united way campaign was five thousand and the whole campaign budget for the year was a hundred thousand and so the impact i had wasn't anticipated i mean did i want to make a difference yes did i want headlines no but the impact was to wake up a community which now has almost tripled its own United Way budget. Its annual campaign in five years has tripled as a result of realizing that they were capable of so much more. If someone from you know, 500 miles away thinks this highly of North Battleford, why can't we? Well done. And that, I think, is why someone made the decision to do, which for me, on an emotional basis, was one of the most incredible things that's ever happened this Brett Wilson day. And it was really just an amazing homecoming for me and my dad, and I know Mum was watching. Yeah, yeah. Well done, Puff. Or should I say Bretsky? <laughs> Bretsky. live with either. <laughs> I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. I, I wish you all the best on Monday. I guess you're, uh, you're going to be a flamer on Monday. Well, and I wish I'd realized you were going to do as much homework as you were going to do. Well done. You dug up stuff that I haven't, that I'd forgotten I knew. <laughs> Carrying the torch Monday, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. At uh, yeah, four thirty Monday at Tom's House of Pizza, which is significant given that when I used to smoke dope, I ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> now, of course, it was twenty-five years ago. So, for those who are wondering, that's gone too. And uh, but I finally got rid of the uh, the chubby chubbiness from the pizza. But here we are at Tom's House of Pizza. Yeah. I'll be going for three hundred meters, which is what everyone does. And uh, I intend to drag it out as long as they'll let me. They might have to pull me down the street. I could see you doing that sort of slow motion uh, chariots of fire run, you know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> side to side. Yeah. We're just going to, and we'll chat with everyone. Anyone who wants to talk to me and stop for pictures, tomorrow's their Monday's the day. Well, and you and I will be meeting face-to-face for the first time, January 24th on CBC uh, in the evening. I think it's, uh, I don't know, 7 or 8 o'clock, something normal, on yep. a little show called Test the Nation. Uh, Brett is the captain of the Believers team. 
And I'm excited. I really am. And I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that we're going to be on the same team together. We're going to have some fun with this. We are. As long as we uh, just uh, say, I don't know, ask Michael Korn, we'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be fine. I just want to beat the sports guys and the politicians. Yeah. Those are the two groups that we really have to beat. Brett, no Brett, do you think it'd be, anybody would be offended? I joked with you earlier about this. If you and I slipped over to the atheist team and just sat there for a little bit? We might be happier there. <laughs> But we've been challenged with running the believers, so either we convert them to the atheist two team or uh, the agnostic, the reluctant agnostic. Reluctant agnostic, yeah, that's right, that's right. Brett Wilson, thanks again. I, I do appreciate your heart, your journey, and, and your time. Thank you. Right, I appreciate the opportunity, Drew. Nice All right, meet. take care, mate. Bye-bye. Brett Wilson from the Dragon's Den. There you go, folks. Someone else's spiritual journey. Really enjoyed that time. Sounds like a decent guy, doesn't he, Timmy? He does. That was a lot of fun. When we come back from our very short break, each week we do a little thing called the Council of Many. If you need help or advice on an issue in your life, then you write into our show, and we'll ask the listeners of the show. And this week on the Council of Many, a man wrote in, and he thinks his worship pastor is gay and wants to know how to confront him about it. Or should he just shut up and let someone else deal with it? Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. Stay with us. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca. Oh,